Expectations. What are your expectations? You probably have asked yourself that question or people have asked it of you. There's a story that is told about a children's Sunday school class that wrote a letter to the church missionaries. The letter said this, Dear missionaries, we are writing this letter to tell you that we are praying for you. We don't expect an answer. (laughs) Now what's clear from that little letter is that those children had low expectations. What is not as clear is whether those low expectations were of God or whether they were of the missionaries. Expectations. Expectations often define our decision-making and planning. For example, maybe you become aware that you're starting to get worn out with the routines of life, and uh, so you have expectations and hopes that there's a way of recovering your energy. So you decide and plan a vacation. This vacation is not going to be to a place like Disneyland that's a flurry of activity, but rather you identify a spot secluded and away from all the hustle and bustle because your expectations are refreshment not to come back more weary than when you left. Maybe it's expectations that provide motivation for you. You know that the old car has got too many miles on it, it's not running like it once did, and you're expecting that it could break down and leave you stranded by the side of the road at any moment. And so you're moved by those expectations to replace it with a new one, or at least one that's newer and more reliable. Expectations. Sometimes we have high hopes and expectations only to have them disappointed in the realities of life, and so we lower expectations so we won't be disappointed. In fact, we might even coin a Murphy's Law to that, that, uh, of that sort to say, uh, expect everything to go wrong. Uh, you probably won't be disappointed, but if something goes right, we can work it in. <laughs> expectations. So my question for you this morning is this. It has to do with expectations. What are your expectations when you sow the seed of the word, the seed of the gospel? Now in the context of Mark chapter 4 and in the messages that Pastor Bill has preached over the past several weeks, he's brought forward that call to sow, hasn't he? He's reminded us of our responsibility as, uh, as individuals and as a church to bring the gospel to those around us, those who are near to us and far from Christ. It's part of our mission upon this earth. But the question comes to be, when we are going about this task of sowing, what should we expect? What should we expect as a result? This morning we're looking at two parables. And they help answer that question for us. What should be our expectation when we sow the seed of the gospel? Now, these are parables. Uh, That's uh, very evident if you just look back at those verses beginning at verse 26. Um, And particularly, if we look at verses 33 and 34, the end of that passage that Taylor read, Mark writes, with many such parables, he was speaking the word to them so far as they were able to hear it. That reminds us that this is a summary that takes us back to the beginning of the fourth chapter at verse 1, where we saw the parable of the sower and the soils. And then through the rest of this chapter, there have been some intervening analogies and pictures, word pictures that Jesus gave, all of which were intended to teach. Mark tells us here that these are not all the parables that Jesus taught. This is a select body of them. 
If you read in the other Gospels, you'll see some additional parables that Jesus used and, and taught such things about what it means to be a neighbor in the parable of the Good Samaritan or the, uh, the unjust judge and the parable that taught us to pray persistently. The, the, the parables that Mark included and that we're looking at this morning were of a particular kind, not the more general or broad emphases that we see in some of the other parables, but these are kingdom parables. The kingdom of God is like, is the uh, kind of the introductory formula that we find for these parables. And so Jesus here in these parables is talking about the kingdom. What is the kingdom of God? Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell us or show us that the preaching and teaching of the kingdom of God was the central theme of Jesus' preaching and teaching ministry. The term occurs some 14 times in Mark's gospel, 32 times in Luke. In Matthew, that expression is used only four times, but Matthew had a preference for a synonymous expression, the kingdom of heaven. And that expression occurs in Matthew numerous times. So these three synoptic gospels, looking at the life of Jesus, understood in common his emphasis upon the kingdom. So what is the kingdom of God? Well, as you would expect with the use of that word, as we even use it in common expression today, a kingdom has to do with a king, a sovereign, and that sovereign's rule. It has to do with how it is that God rules his creation. And more specifically, how he deals with those who are his adversaries and how he brings benefits to those who are his subjects. The kingdom of God could be understood at a number of levels. If you just zoom your camera lens out and see the big picture, the kingdom of God is his rule from beginning to end of time and space. It was a sovereign God who created all things. We learn from the end or from the beginning of the book. And at the end of the book, we see it's a sovereign king who establishes his reign upon this earth in its fullest sense, having defeated all of his foes who are now busy and at work in the world, and establishes the perfect rule that he envisioned from the start. That's the wide-angle view. Now, if you just zoom in a little bit, you'll see that at various periods and places in time and place that the kingdom finds expression in various ways. If you look in the Old Testament, you'll see the kingdom of God operating in and through Israel and how it is that he was accomplishing his purposes. In fact, in a, a particular model of rule in which he was the king, he ruled through earthly kings who ruled over his people Israel in that particular people group. It doesn't say that he had no control over the rest of the world. In fact, if you read the book of Daniel, you'll see how it is that God is sovereign over all the nations, and he brings all of those nations into his plan for managing his created world. When we come to the New Testament, we find the kingdom of God manifests through the church. The church and the kingdom are not one and the same thing, but the, the church is the current expression of God's kingdom rule. As we gather here this morning, we sing of the Lion of Judah. We acknowledge God as king and ruler in our gathering here today. And particularly, we understand our relationship to King Jesus, who upon a day is going to return and set up his kingdom rule upon this earth in what we know as the millennial kingdom. So we have the big, broad picture. We zoom in a little bit, and we understand that in our time and place, the manifestation of the kingdom program is in and through the church. But then we zoom in even further and realize that there is an aspect and an application of the kingdom rule of God that pertains to us as individuals. 
We as a church are a corporate gathering of redeemed believers, individuals who have understood what Jesus came to do, who understood that that is how God is at work in our lives today is through the redemption of his son. And we have by faith bought into that plan. So there is a kingdom aspect that regulates our daily living. Now, as we look at these parables, I think we see significance for them as it relates to all three levels. There certainly is that broad picture of God's kingdom plan, the kingdom of God from from, uh, beginning to end. There is an aspect of it that applies to our life together as the church, and there are those aspects of the rule and reign of our Lord Jesus in our lives that call us to a life of obedience. And so when we come to this particular pair of parables, we discover that they are talking about how it is that the kingdom grows. These, uh, the first parable is called the parable of the growing seed. And the second is called the parable of the mustard seed. It's striking that the Lord Jesus used the picture of seeds for the comparison to the kingdom because it tells us something about its nature as living and dynamic and organic rather than mechanical or structural. We might think of a kingdom in terms of a system of government, and there certainly is order and system in the way that God rules. But the seed pictures here help us to understand that there's something that's alive and dynamic in God's kingdom work. It's the life and the working of God, a living Savior, invading our lives as living, breathing people and doing his work of growth in and among us. So I return to that question. When you sow the seed of the word, when you sow the seed of the gospel, when you speak of the kingdom of God, what should you expect? In a word, growth. That should be our expectation, growth. Now these two parables then are going to help us understand in more particular aspects what that growth should look like. And so look with me, if you would, at verses 26 through 29. Let's just read again the parable of the growing seed. And we're going to find in this parable four expectations that we might have as it relates to growth. We're going to come to the second parable, the parable of the mustard seed, in a few moments and find that fifth principle. The outline, fill in the blank, is on the back of your bulletin if you wish to take notes on it this morning. So here's what we find beginning at verse 26. Jesus was saying, the kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the soil. And he goes to bed at night and gets up by day, and the seed sprouts and grows. How, he himself does not know. The soil produces crops by itself. First the blade, then the head, then the mature grain in the head. But when the crop permits, he immediately puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. Well, that's a pretty simple story, isn't it? Actually, it's a story that only Mark records. This parable is unique to Mark. But it does draw, as I've already noted, from the, the imagery of seed and seed planting. The seed is the word. We saw that earlier in the passage, uh, chapter 4, in the parable of the sower. And that is a consistent point with that first parable in this chapter. But at, that, at this point... Mark, uh, recording Jesus' story, takes a little bit of a different turn. And rather than looking at the soils and the different kinds of reception of the word, here he's talking about about how the seed works 
in the process of growth. So we come now to the, uh, the first of these expectations that we might have of the, the uh, spread of the gospel as we scatter seed. And here it is. First, expect growth that is beyond your efforts. Expect growth that is beyond your efforts. Often when we think about expectations and outcomes, we take to ourselves the responsibility to produce those outcomes, don't we? If it's the vacation, you don't say, I'm going to take a vacation. Let's just see how the Lord leads. At least I don't plan vacations that way. Now, some people might, but somebody's got to decide that we're going to go get in the car and drive someplace. Now, I'm not saying that you ignore God in this process, okay? That's, there's a certain dynamic that happens here, but there, there's a certain expectation we have that if we're going to get the outcomes we want, we've got to take the responsibility for doing it all. What's interesting here as it forms our expectation is that we are casters of seed, period, in this story. Look at it there in verse 26. The kingdom of God is like a man, you can substitute a woman there if you want, who casts seed upon the soil. There it is, the casting of seed. That's what we've seen in the previous uh, parables as well. Somebody's got to plant the seed. And that is what God has called us to do. Now, the fact that there's a period there is evident in what follows in the next verse. Because after the sower has planted the seed, he goes to bed at night, gets up by day. And what you find here is that he's going about activities of life, but it's not mentioned that he's doing anything with respect to the seed. He planted the seed. Now, lest I be misunderstood, I realize that there's more to our involvement in this process that is taught elsewhere in Scripture. For example, there's preparation of the soil. Paul speaks of, of uh, Paul watering, a Paul, or Paul planting, Apollos watering. There is the, uh, the necessity of prayer. Once you share the gospel with somebody, surely you want to pray for them and pray that the Lord will, will cause that seed to bear fruit in their lives. But what Jesus is emphasizing in this story is the fact that that sowing is our responsibility. And if we try to take it upon ourselves to go beyond that with the guaranteeing of results, we're taking on responsibility that isn't ours. In fact, it's something we can't do. You and I cannot make a believer. And we're going to see more about that later on as we see how it is that believers get made. But the fact of the matter is we plant seed. If we try to take on more responsibility than God intends for us to take on, we get ourselves frustrated and disappointed, and our expectations get turned to disappointment. This, this statement does not lower our expectations. It just refuses to take on the responsibility for those expectations when it's not ours. Our call is to be those who cast seed. I think of the, uh, the missionary enterprise. You know, there are many missionaries who know and sense the call of God and they rise faithfully to go to very difficult places in this world and spread the gospel. But I've had experiences with missionaries who come home almost sheepishly and embarrassed and even sometimes you kind of get a tinge that they feel guilty. Because, you know, they're always supposed to come back and talk about all the great things that are happening on the mission field in their avenue of service. And sometimes they come and say, well, you know, we've been laboring and the converts are few. 
Now, for you and me sitting here being big success-oriented folks, we might think, well, why are we sending them? Why are we spending our missionary dollars if they're so, their results are so few? You see, what we have done is just projected upon them expectations that they cannot meet any more than we can meet them. The question ought to be, are they faithfully scattering the seed? Are they doing the work of bringing the gospel message? That's what God says is the role of the sower here. We expect outcomes, but we expect them to be beyond the possibilities of our efforts. And that's the beginning point of our expectation. We do what we can do, what we're called to do, but there's more to the story that unfolds as Jesus gives us more about expectation. The second expectation we find here in verses 27b, the latter part of verse 27, and verse 28. And this is the second expectation. Expect growth that is beyond your understanding. Expect growth that is beyond your understanding. You see, it says here that when this sower has gone to bed at night, gets up in the day, something's happening with that seed that he doesn't understand. He can't explain all of the miracle of growth. He can't cause it, and he probably doesn't even understand it. Who among us would dare say that we fully understand how seeds grow? I mean, there, there's, science has given us some measure of expectation and explanation as to how seeds grow. And if you're curious, you probably go out at the day after you plant, you go out with your little trowel and dig it up to see if anything's happened with the seed. How's that work for a crop? <laughs> Maybe you wait a while and, and then you go out and dig it up and you see that that seed has begun to change, that, that it's swollen up and something's starting to stick out the side of it. Well, Jesus tells us that. Look at it there. He says um, that the, first the blade, then the head, then the mature grain. So you can watch it and observe it at those various stages. But who of us can explain what causes that little seed to produce? It's part of the mystery that God has built into life. And it's the same way in our kingdom seed sowing and in the growth of faith in people. There is a certain element of mystery in this, and we shouldn't try to unscrew the inscrutable, as my theology professor used to tell us. Try to explain away those things that are the miraculous and that that have certain elements of the unknown to us. The fact that we cannot explain it, the fact that we don't understand it, does not mean it doesn't happen. Look at the crop. And that's exactly Jesus' point when it comes to this matter of growth. The growth comes because there is power and life in the seed. As it enters the soil and as it engages the other processes that God has ordained for its growth. It grows of itself. Now that may seem to, uh, uh, that may seem to stretch, our, stretch our credibility because we like to think about things reasonably. And we like to have all the answers. So how is it that we say that this message, this word, is alive? I mean, looks to me like it's a book, paper, inert. And yet Hebrews 4.12 tells us this. The word of God is, I like the King James, quick and powerful. 
That means alive. It's living. It's active. And it's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and it is a discerner of the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Now, I don't understand everything there is to know about that, but I do know that that's what God says it is. It's living and alive. And when that word is unleashed, it does what the word as a living thing does. It's living and powerful, and it pierces to the heart of our being. I think of an example of how this works in the life of the Apostle Paul. Keep your place here in Mark, but turn over, if you would, to 1 Corinthians with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Because we're talking about sowing the word of the gospel, the seed of the gospel, and the fundamentals that are entailed in its truth claims. As is the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, listen to what he says at verse 18. For the word of the cross is foolishness. Well, I better read a little further. Is foolishness to those who are perishing. Now, you know what that says? That for those who are in their birth default mode and who are thoughtful persons, they hear this message of the cross and they say, that is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. That's Vogel paraphrase. The word here says, the preaching of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But, verse 18 goes on, To us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now, can you think of any positions that are more diametrically opposite one another than those two? We're talking about the same message. One person says, that is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. The other said, that is the power of God that has transformed me. What opposite views? Now, think about it for a moment. Which, which view would you hold? I suspect most, if not all of you, would say it's the power of God. But let me ask you, if you were born in the default mode, why are you now in this other position? What accounts for the difference? Why is it that you who once saw the message of the cross as foolishness now see it as the power of God to salvation? I often would ask my students that question. And I would start by saying, how many of you came to faith in Christ in late adolescence or adult life? The reason I chose that time frame was because I wanted people who had, you know, they had matured to a point that they thought about these things and and wrestled with them in coming to their conclusions. And I would invariably get some hands and I'd say, all right, explain to me how you got from seeing the preaching of the cross as foolishness as seeing it to the power of God that puts you in a seminary classroom. And it was interesting to hear the stories. There would be often common themes that would run through them, some even some of the more extreme. I had students on occasion who said that they were adamantly hostile to things of God. But then something happened. Well, what happened? Let's read on. Move down to chapter 2 in 1 Corinthians. Paul's now talking about his first visit to the city of Corinth as a missionary. 
He says, when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. In these several verses at the beginning of chapter 2, he goes back and forth between what he didn't do and what he did do. And he says, when I came, I didn't come with a good sales pitch. Again, the Vogel paraphrase. I didn't come here with superiority of speech. He's got the vocabulary of the philosophers and the rhetoricians of his day, the finest of those thinkers and communicators. He said, I didn't come that way, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now stop and think for a minute. He's coming as a missionary to scatter seed. He's coming to people who say the message of the cross is foolishness. And he knew that from experience because before he came to Corinth in his missionary journey, he'd been at Athens. And you remember that experience on Mars Hill where uh, there were some who who, uh, believed, but most of the crowd there, when they heard him talking about the resurrection, um, this is the Greek. (laughs) That was their response. They said, in effect, that is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. So Paul knew that that could be the expected reaction. So he comes to this, he's already said that his audience deems this message to be foolishness, and so he's got the perfect way of remedying the problem. Give them a message that they know to be foolish. Nothing but Christ and Him crucified. And don't do it with rhetorical sophistication in this rhetorically sophisticated environment of Corinth. It was. Second to Athens as a culture center. So don't come with a, a message that is rhetorically sophisticated. In fact, he said I, in verse 3, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. The ancient writer said if you were going to be an effective speaker, you had to be confident and composed and, and uh, have a very strong and powerful speaking voice. And here Paul says, that wasn't me. Now, it wasn't that Paul was lacking capability. But he understood that the power of his message did not rest in what he did. My message, verse 4, he says, and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, here's the key, but in demonstration, in convincing proof, in the power that changes lives, in convincing work of the spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Now there it is. It's that message of Christ, that true seed to be scattered in the hand of the Holy Spirit that transforms life. That's what changed you. That's why you one time may have been a person who who thought the cross was foolishness, but now you're here this morning as a worshiper of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because it came to your understanding through the power of the Word and its own living vitality in the convicting hand of the Holy Spirit. That's what brings about the transformation. So our expectations aren't something that we accomplish beyond the scattering of the seed. They're not even things that we understand the workings of fully. We just know that this is what works. There's a song we used to sing. I know whom I have believed. Remember the second stanza of that? I know not how the Spirit moves, convincing men of sin. 
Revealing Jesus in the Word, creating faith in Him. I don't know. That's the, the theme of that stanza, but the refrain goes like this. But I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that He's able to keep that which I've committed unto Him against that day. That's fruit, that's growth, and that's solid expectation. But it comes in the realm where we can't fully understand and explain it all. We don't have to. We just need to know that. We don't always need to know how. So, your expectations should be that which uh, expect uh, that it will surpass our understanding. Third, expect that growth may take time. Verse 28. You'll notice that the seed sower did not go out, plant seed, and then when he got up the next morning, go out and find a crop. Doesn't work that way, does it? All of you who have gardens or farms know exactly what he's talking about here. That it takes some time for that seed to germinate, and then it's going to put forth that little tender shoot. And if the deer don't get it, maybe it will grow to maturity. And that's exactly the picture described here. As it's first the blade, then you get a stalk with a head on it, and then that stalk fills out with the grain that you've planted. It's a process that takes time. Now, the timetable is not prescribed here. Some people respond more quickly than others. But the fact of the matter is that we should not be off-put by the fact that it might take time. We scatter the seed in the confidence and the expectation that God will bring fruit and results in his time and we ought not be impatient as we wait i had a student one time whose name is heather heather came to faith in christ um, in her late 20s or early 30s from an unbelieving family she was the first in her family an extended family who came to faith but she had a, a very deep burden for one particular member of her extended family a favorite aunt heather cast the seed of the gospel with her aunt. Now, she didn't do what we might infer from this parable. She didn't say, okay, here it is, and I'm not going to mention it ever again. She, over time, continued to hold forth the truth of the gospel. She also prayed, and though this uh, parable does not emphasize prayer, as we've already considered, there is more that we are called to do and involved in doing, and prayer is one of those things. We can always pray. Heather cast seed and prayed for her aunt for 22 years. And when that aunt was in her late 70s or early 80s, she professed faith in Christ. Now, how often do you hear of somebody in that season of life coming to faith in Christ? Not often. The plant and the seed grew, but it took time. And in Heather's life, it developed patience because she didn't give up. She didn't give up hope. She continued to have that focused expectation that God is doing his good kingdom work. And she believed in faith that God's kingdom work was going to touch the life of her favorite aunt. And he did. Well, that leads us to the fourth expectation here, and that is that you should expect that growth will reach maturity. That's the ultimate culminating part of the growing process, isn't it? You see there at verse 29, when the crop permits, he immediately puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. 
Now that harvest speaks of the fullness. When you think of the broad scope, it's that which is going to be the culmination, the end of the book in the Bible. When God's going to cast Satan into the the lake of fire, all of the opposition to his kingdom reign will be terminated, and he will establish the perfect righteousness that he had designed from the start. There is that stage in which we, as as, uh, in the the church age, in the kingdom program, are involved in in, uh, carrying forth the gospel. And churches mature as as they sense their mission and as they apply their mission more consistently. And as God grants churches to grow. In the individual life, it's that process where we can reach a stage of maturity, where our our responses to things and our relationship with Christ is more Christ-like at every turn. Expected growth will reach maturity. That's the point uh, of this whole parable in a nutshell. We plant the seed. The seed has its own vitality, and as it works in God's design and plan, God brings forth the result. Paul planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. Now, I find that to be encouraging as a a sower of seed, because the ultimate outcomes don't count on me. What I'm responsible to is is cast the seed. Cast it expectantly because God's at work in this process, as this parable teaches us. And God's going to bring result. If you take the responsibility for results, they won't happen on your timetable and you'll be discouraged. uh, Think you're a failure. When in fact, a failure, let's put it this way, a faithful person is not a failure. A faithful person is doing what God has called him or her to do. Well, there's one more expectation, and that takes us into the second of these two parables. It's the parable of the mustard seed. This is a very simple story, isn't it? Look at it again. Verse 31, the kingdom is like a mustard seed, which when sown upon the soil, though it is smaller than all the seeds that are upon the soil, yet when it's sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and forms large branches so that the birds of the air can nest under its shade. We all know that the mustard seed is small. You've heard that forever, haven't you, when this parable has been taught? I read that there are, it takes almost 20,000 mustard seeds to make an ounce. Now, I don't know who counted all those mustard seeds, So just say, I'm taking somebody else's word for it. You can join me in that if you're so inclined. But we do know this. Jesus said it is the smallest of seeds. That's good economy, unless mustard seed's expensive. I don't know what you have to pay for an ounce of mustard seed. But, you know, if you can get a plant out of a seed and it takes that 20,000 plants out of an ounce, that's pretty good distribution, isn't it? Smallest of seeds. But what Jesus' point is that from that very inauspicious beginning, This seed grows disproportionately. And that's exactly the expectation that he has for us. From the mustard seed parable, we learn that we should expect growth that is vastly disproportionate to its beginning. It starts small, and yet it grows so expansively. This mustard seed can yield a plant that grows 10 to 12 feet tall with a stalk that's three to four inches in diameter. 
It puts out these branches, as, the, as Jesus tells us in the parable, such that the birds can come in there and find uh, protection and shelter, shade from the hot summers of, of the Holy Land. All disproportionate to that little inauspicious start. And you know, that's the way it works in the kingdom as well. I mean, God's the creator. And in the big picture, pretty spectacular thing he did in making the creation. And in that big uh, expansive, of, uh, expansive picture of the kingdom, we know that he's doing powerful things. But stop and think about it in terms of our, uh, uh, the, the mission of Christ and the establishing of the church. And think about it in terms of the individual and how things start small and yet grow. Here's a man who's telling this story who was a lowly carpenter from the little village of Nazareth. Hardly a seat of political power where kings would reign. This wasn't Rome. This wasn't even Jerusalem. This was Nazareth, just a little village up in the Galilean region. This carpenter was a humble carpenter. The prophet said he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, despised, rejected of men. Ultimately, he was going to be crucified. After he had made a, a royal entry into the city riding on a donkey, not exactly the way that a king comes, no royal entourage, maybe some popular acclamation that was very fickle, but, but look at the royal court, 12 ordinary fishermen, tax collector. Uh, these, were, these were not exactly the movers and shakers in the political world of kings. Oh, they had aspirations, had to have their aspirations rebuked at points in time because they saw a great opportunity to get out of the fishing boat and get into the government. And Jesus said, no, not. That's, that's not the way my kingdom works. Well, you know, this, this little group had grown. There were about 500 believers that saw Jesus after the resurrection and before his ascension. But then something happened. The Holy Spirit came. And Peter stood on Pentecost with the power of the word of the gospel. And he preached the gospel and 3,000 people were converted. One sermon. We read in the book of Acts how the growth continued. The church was growing. There were being added to their number those who were being saved. That seed was taking root and doing what the seed in its vitality and empowered by the Spirit does. Christianity steadily grew. And think about what's happened in 2,000 years intervening. Christianity is currently the largest religion in the world with over 2 billion adherents. And it's had a profound influence on the societies and the cultures of this world over the past 2,000 years. A good example of this kind of unexpected growth can be seen in the case of China. Missionary enterprises have gone to, to China for many years. You can think of the names of the Stams, for example. Among Southern Baptists is Lottie Moon, who was the matriarch of Southern Baptist missions, and she was a missionary to China. In 1949, when the communists took over China and expelled the nationalist government, there were estimated to be 
about a half million Christians in China. Surely under the suppressive regime of communism, that would be extinct, wiped out. And yet now, some 70 years later, the estimated population of Christians in China has reached more than 60 million, according to a study done by a man named Feng Gong Yang, a sociologist at Purdue University. The number is growing by millions every year. And at this rate, if this growth continues, by the year 2030, Christians in China will exceed 200 million, surpassing the Christian population of the United States and making China the country with the largest Christian population in the world. In Africa, there are estimates that there are 6 million converts from Islam to Christianity every year. No wonder ISIS is worried. Because despite the adversity, God is growing his kingdom. If the kingdom of God were a human enterprise, if the church were a human enterprise, it would have collapsed long ago. For all of the imperfections of people who have identified with it. And yet Jesus says that that his kingdom program will grow. Because God's in it. Think about it this way. The Apostle John had a vision. We know it as the book of Revelation. And in chapter 5 of that vision, we read these words, beginning at verse 8. When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. There's a lot of imagery in here, and I won't take the time to explain it all. But get the picture. These all sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and break its seals. For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe, every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Now, the description makes it pretty clear who they're talking about. But notice the extent of the growth of the kingdom of Christ. Every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. How's that for an expectation? Or maybe you'd like to hear it in a second reference from that same book of Revelation where we read beginning in verse 15, and if a familiar tune comes to mind, good for you. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Hallelujah. That is some expectation. And that is the kingdom with which you and I have to do if we know the Lord Jesus. So we look to the expectations of this kind of glorious final outcome. And we're reminded that we start where we are today. Scatter the seed and expect God to do his work.